Welcome once again to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. In this episode, Pastor Andrew sheds new light onto the events of the Transfiguration and how, as citizens of heaven, we will be transformed like Moses and Elijah were on that awesome day. Sometimes difficulties and troubles come to release you, not bind you. Sometimes all those things swirling around you are actually God using the conflicts going around us and the troubles to actually set us free. And that's what Jesus came to do, to set us free. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is called sanctification, is that work of release and setting free into the depths of our being. Yes, when we come to Christ, there is a level where God sets us free, we are brought into the kingdom of God, sin falls away, a whole lot of good things happen to us. And of course the old Pentecostals believed in instant holiness. The moment the Holy Spirit came to your life, you were instantly holy and you couldn't sin anymore. But of course they learnt that that wasn't particularly right. So that philosophy didn't float for too long. But you see, what begins in our conversion or for many of us, begins at our baptism. It's the beginning of a work of God in our lives, which the Bible calls sanctification. According to Paul at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Jesus is our righteousness, he's our sanctification. But it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of sanctification in us. So Jesus is at the heart and the core of everything that we get from God and God intends us to have. But the Holy Spirit is often the person of the Godhead who puts it into action, who implements it in our lives. And some of those times God releases in the good times and then the times when it's going extremely tough. There's a work of God going on inside of us. And as we lean into that work, then we get released and set free and we get transformed and we become a different person. Now, we have the reading of the Transfiguration every year. I don't know how many times you've heard this story or read this story. It always gets me as to, well, what do you say about it? You know, What can you say about it? So I thought oh, I'd just dig into a little bit of the detail for us here, to see what the writer, Luke in this case, is trying to get at. What's he wanting us to hear? Now we have three of the disciples and Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And Jesus is shiny. He is glowing. 
He's more than glowing. He's ultra-glowing. He's shimmering there. There's glory all around him. The same essence is there with Moses and Elijah. And, of course, the three disciples are there, and they are just trying to come to grips with this, and they're actually trying to stay awake. I don't know why the disciples are so tired all the time. Have you ever noticed that? They're in the garden when Jesus is going through the really toughest period of his life. They're asleep. And he wakes them up and says, oh, you're asleep. And they can't stay awake. You think about it. There's this glory all around them and they're falling asleep. When the Bible talks about stuff like this, it gives us some very interesting ingredients to the story. The stuff it doesn't give us. You realise we don't know the colour of Jesus' eyes. We don't even know the colour of his hair. We don't know how tall he is. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we just don't know that if you're reading your average modern novel, you get the scripture doesn't give us a whole bunch of fill-ins. But then every now and again it gives us this sort of little insight that the disciples were born in asleep. I think they were having a really tough time. And we don't know how long this interlude went for. We don't know how long this event went for. Maybe it went for a few hours. Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his coming death how he's going to approach that. But have a think about it for a moment. Moses and Elijah. Moses was truly dead. Jude talks about in Jude 9, the archangel Michael having a brawl with Satan over what was going to happen to the body of Moses. So we know Moses was dead He's resurrected, obviously. But when we look at this story, neither Moses or Elijah are phantoms. Neither of them are ghosts. They are real flesh and blood. They are real persons standing there with Jesus, talking with him. We know this because Peter wants to make a shelter for each of them. So you don't make a shelter for a ghost, do you? What does a ghost need with a shelter? So there's a sense of somehow or other Moses and Elijah are physically there. Now, Moses is dead and this is really a startling event. But of course Elijah didn't die. He just went to heaven without dying first. But that was something like 800 years before Jesus came. He would be getting a bit long in the tooth, wouldn't he? Unless in the process, God transformed his body. And that's the gist of it. That both of these men are in resurrected form. Their bodies were glorious. They shine transformed by an act of God. In a sense, transformed 
as we one day will be. Don't you love that little verse from Philippians? That we are citizens of heaven. A little while back I was reading a scholarly book that basically was really debunking heaven. Saying that Anglican Christians have just got a wrong concept of heaven. That what God is really wanting to do is do something here on earth. And I was also reading my New Testament at the same time as I was reading this book that was playing down the whole essence of heaven and when on earth we're going to get there and all that. And here's Paul saying, we are citizens of heaven. So in somehow or other, as Christians, we're already linked to heaven. And then we go and pray that prayer, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. If Father God is in heaven and Jesus is coming to take us home to those mansions in heaven, heaven's an awesome real place which we're destined for. And I don't think we're going to wait a thousand plus years to get there. My gut feeling is that we are going to be confronted with the judgment and then if we pass that, we're in. Jesus intends us to enter into paradise. He intends us to be with him there forever. So here we have Moses and Elijah in this incredibly glorious, resurrected, physical form. They are physically visible to the disciples. Now, the passage finishes with this comment. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And I believe that the reason they did that was Jesus, as we found elsewhere, told them not to. And there are a number of occasions where Jesus would tell someone he's healed or the disciples not to repeat what they'd seen or heard at that point. And yet people are people, aren't they? You've got a leper that's been healed. What are the chances he's going to keep quiet? Time and time again, he is basically wanting to keep this on the quiet. And some people have interpreted this, especially in Mark's Gospel, as the mesonaic secret. Now by that, they mean that Jesus played down the mesonaic nature of his ministry to such an extent that he actually didn't believe himself that he was the Messiah. My gut feeling is Jesus played down that because the more he got out there that he was the Messiah, the more difficult it became for him to do the ministry that God called him to do. To actually fulfill his role as Messiah needed a certain restraint out there with those who had been healed and the disciples just to give him enough room to move so that his ministry wasn't over in a week. And he managed to actually last three and a half years. But there are points where if they kept going out there, he was literally going to be squashed before he could even begin. 
So there's a sense that Jesus wanted to play this down, not because he wasn't the Messiah, but because he was the Messiah. As I was reading that, I thought, it calls us to come to grips with just who Jesus is. I don't know what you would feel if you were there with him that day. He was your teacher and your rabbi and yeah, you just stunned time and time again with the wisdom of his teaching and actually incredibly stunned by the miracles. You imagine being there and the guy with the withered hand and Jesus prays and it gets restored right in front of your eyes. Or someone who hadn't walked for 30 years gets up and starts running around. Or a blind man who's been blind from birth all of a sudden can see. Imagine if you're watching that, just how awesome it is. And there you are on the mountain with Jesus and he's now shining in a glorious form and Moses and Elijah turn up looking just the same. Wouldn't it just boggle your eyes to think about, wow, who is he? And just in case we don't get it, there's a cloud comes over them and a voice of Father God comes from the cloud and says, this is my only son. Okay, this is who he is. He is God's only son. He's just not some super-duper human person who somehow or other learned some magical tricks and some of them been healing people. This was the literal son of the living God. I always get caught by the next statement. I don't know if you do. Listen to him. Wouldn't you? If God had just said, this is my only son, wouldn't you listen to him? Wouldn't you already be listening to him? But how often don't we? How often do we swerve from listening? Or swerve from hearing? And the problem with the nation of Israel coming out of the prophecy of Isaiah, they can hear but not hear. They can see but not see. They can physically see something but can't get to the depths of its spiritual meaning. And God really does want us to listen to him. Because it's only as we listen to him that we can get to the depths of the spiritual meaning of what God is saying into our lives. And as we're going to learn as we move through the Lenten studies, there's this sense that listening to God is so critical to our growth our freedom, and our prosperity. And so we need to make not only that time to be with God to listen, but at those unusual points in our life which can come almost anywhere and be in the weirdest of circumstances, to actually stop and say, what are you saying, God? I remember when I was a new Christian, and I was living at a theological college. 
and it was raining. I ran across the road to my car, opened the boot, and my Bible fell into this muddy pool of water. And I went down to grab my Bible, and as I was doing that, God says, you're upset about your Bible, aren't you? I says, well, it's all muddy. He says, that's what I feel like when men walk their muddy boots all over my word. I forgot the rain. I just stood there stunned. Because God was talking to me. And you know, I repeat that story. You've heard it a number of times probably. But I repeat that story, especially in the right circumstances. Especially when I'm talking to a large group of people who probably believe in the book. Because it's not just God's enemies that tread their muddy boots all over his word, but sometimes those who say they are for him also misuse or misunderstand or misrepresent his word. And we can do that. So it is in the depths of God's heart, he's not happy with how men and women treat his word. But what stunned me that day was that God would share his heart with me. And you know, that's what he wants us to do. He wants to share with us. And when those events occur, and they're not very often, you just got to stop whatever you're doing and listen and hear and see what he's saying. We live in a culture that denies him. We use his name as swear words. We reject him. We reject his wisdom. We reject who he is as a culture. And the only way that you and I are going to break into that culture and make it clear just who he is and what he's done for them is for us to come to grips with who he truly is. That he is the living God. The son of the living God. Come from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus. And in our call to rebuild the ancient ruins of our church, we've got to really see that we can't do any of that unless Jesus is the centre. Not just the centre of our hearts, but the centre of our minds, the centre of our perspective, the centre of our approach. That somehow we've got to get over being ashamed of him or being ashamed of talking about him or being afraid of talking about him. Because maybe we would get rejected. Maybe they would think we are religious fanatics. Well, what's wrong with being a religious fanatic in the right way? I know there are religious fanatics that are in the wrong way. But sometimes being totally sold out for God to the point that we are so engrossed with him we cannot but help share about him. 
And there in John 3, Jesus talks about the Son of Man being lifted up. So what does he mean by lifted up? He means the very thing that he's talking to Moses and Elijah about in this passage. His coming death. His death on the cross. That when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, he will draw all men and women to himself. Now, if he's simply just been crucified, that would not happen. But he didn't stay crucified. He didn't stay dead. In the power of the Spirit, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He's not dead, but he's alive. In fact, he's very present here right now. This Jesus, whom we serve and we love, we need to come to grips with him more and more to release ourselves, to be able to share him with a world that is far from him and desperately needs him. For us to restore the ancient ruins of our church, Jesus has to be at the foremost of what we're doing. Okay, you want to bow your heads and let me just pray. Father God, you know how hard we've worked and tried to engage people, to bring generations to you. Lord, give us a new sense of you and a new understanding of you. Help us to come to grips with who you are. And Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to proclaim you out there, to see the lives and hearts of men, women and children changed as they encounter you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.